Father in heaven, John was no reed shaken by the wind. He was a man with spiritual steel in his backbone. And we're going to look at a sampling of some of his preaching this morning. And I ask you, Lord, for some of that steel in my own backbone and for my brothers and sisters here as well. I pray, Father, that you would give us a taste of the preaching of John the Baptist and that you would give us twice his spirit. Lord, we thank you for this man that we sit at his feet now to learn uh, his distinct contribution, his role in the Gospel of Luke. And yet perhaps it was John the Apostle who told us clearer than anything that John's mission ultimately is to decrease so that Jesus may increase. May you come now and show us how to do that, Lord. Show us how to get small so that we see you loom large, not only in this text, but in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, at this time I invite you to open a Bible to the Gospel according to Luke. The Gospel according to Luke, chapter 3 and beginning in verse 7. Luke's Gospel, chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. If you'd like to use one of the red Bibles from underneath the seats in front of you, this morning's text is found on page 858. 858 in the Red Bibles. Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. This past week on Thursday, I attended our monthly West Honka Pastors ministerial meeting. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with this, it's a monthly get-together where I have the privilege to have a meal with uh, other pastors in this area across denominational lines, and in many cases across, really, uh, the theological spectrum. We're, we're quite a diverse bunch. We're a little bit like the UN when we get together. Um, but nevertheless, we have a meal, and we hear from each other, and it's a, it's a privilege. Um, and during our meeting this last Thursday, uh, the question came up about how do you prepare and preach sermons? What does that process look like for you and and in your local church, and so answers kind of came in from all quarters. Um, There were some around the table who took um, what they called a topical approach uh, to preaching, where the topic is said ahead of time, and then they work their way backward to Scripture and find a verse or two to to connect to the subject matter, to the topic. Others, because of their tradition, are bound by canon law to what you call the lectionary, and this happens in the Catholic Church as well as in high Protestant churches where uh, a series of texts that are known as lections are selected pre, prior to, uh, not only to the preaching, but also to the, really, the prior uh, choice of anyone in the part of the church. Hundreds of years ago, the lectionary was set up to work its way through the Christian calendar and thus select uh, preaching texts appropriate to the, to the timing of the traditional church year. And I, I grew up in that stream of, of uh, Protestant uh, tradition, and so I am very fond of de- uh, devoting at least two series each year to Advent and to Lent in view of that. That's, some of that rubs off on me. Well, eventually the question came to me, um, what's our pattern as a church? Dave, how do, you do, how do you do preaching? And it's funny, folks already knew. I didn't have to actually answer the question because somebody leaned over to me and kind of nudged me and said, I bet you guys do expository preaching. I bet you guys are just verse by verse through books of the Bible. I just said, guilty as charged. (laughs) Yes, that's what we do. And there's a hundred reasons why we do it this way. Um, But 
let me say that on the top of that list, the reason why we do verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book study of Scripture is that only this method, only this method is the one that allows you to come face to face with what the Apostle Paul calls the whole counsel of God. Standing on the beach in Miletus with the elders at the church of Ephesus, the Paul, Paul says to them in Acts 20, verse 26 and 27, I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. That's one of the reasons, maybe the chief reason, that we approach preaching in this church the way that we do. We are doggedly committed to expository preaching in this church. Because without that commitment, I would never likely choose the passage that you have in front of you this morning. I am confident of that. Would you follow along with me as I read today's sermon text from front to back? Luke chapter 3, verses 7 to 14. He, this is John the Baptist, he therefore said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees." Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? He answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized, and said, he said to them, they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. So here's the big idea today. John the Baptist serves to shake us and wake us to the undeniable certainty that there is a judgment coming. John the Baptist in his ministry, he serves to shake us and wake us, to stab us broad awake to the certainty that there's a judgment coming. Luke tells us in Luke chapter 1 verse 4 the reason he wrote his gospel. Luke chapter 1 verse 4 says that you may have certainty concerning all that Jesus did and taught. And John the Baptist serves to shake us and wake us to the undeniable certainty that there's a judgment coming, a future reckoning. Two points today. Let's begin with point one. If we or the people in our list of five are going to be saved, we must all come to understand the non-negotiable necessity of true repentance. That's point one. If we or the people on our lists of five are going to be saved we must all come to understand the non-negotiable necessity of repentance. If you wonder what's a list of five, this is a list of five. This is awfully faded, sun faded. This is the morning light falling on my Bible when I pray for these folks. This is my list of five or a list of 35 at this point. Um, 
people that I believe are far from Christ within my sphere of influence that I want to pray for, that I want to care for and seek to share a verbal witness with. And if you don't have a list of five, they're in the back of the, they're in the fellowship hall by the information table as you leave and I encourage you to have one. That's what a list of five is. So if we are the people and our list of five are going to be saved, we must all come to understand the non-negotiable necessity of true repentance. Let's begin with verse 7. He, John the Baptist, said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. You know what immediately strikes me about what John is talking about here? I mean, other than everything, is that he is approaching potential baptismal candidates here. Do we do it anything like him? Granted, the group that he refers to as the crowds, Luke refers to as the crowds in verse 7, Matthew tells us, this is probably, this is the Pharisees and Sadducees from Matthew's view. And so if Luke and Matthew are singing the same song, then we believe that the crowds was the large group and it was the Pharisees and Sadducees specifically that he was pointing this to. Uh, Matthew 3, 7 says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Now, you have to admit, John is slightly abrasive here in his tone toward these folks. That would be an understatement, right? John is thundering away at this crowd. According to Luke 3, 7, they are a crowd that came out to be baptized by him. Hmm. What do we do when somebody wants to be baptized? Throw them in the water, right? I mean, who are we to keep a person from the waters of baptism? That's between them and God, right? They can be baptized if they want, right? Wrong. Dead wrong. This crowd approaches the famous John the Baptist, the man that's been making quite a stir around the region of the Jordan. They come to participate in what is this cleansing rite, this preparatory religious rite of cleansing and religious ritual. And yet, because John knows exactly where they are, that their hearts are not right before God, he does not rush to speedily soothe their conscience, because that would make it easier on him. If John had done so, he would have become complicit in their rebellion. He would have hardened their hearts another turn and made it possibly impossible for them to be saved. Now, there's a difference between John's baptism here and what we today know as the ordinance of Christian baptism. We'll get to that difference in just a moment. At this point, I simply want to draw a parallel we would be wise to admit. Where John is shrewd and circumspect, about potential candidates for baptism. The church today, in many quarters it would seem, is becoming increasingly undiscerning and dangerously lax in who it welcomes into its waters of baptism. And though I will not publicly name the churches, I know of at least two churches here in the West Metro that have held what are coming to be known as spontaneous baptisms, if you're familiar with that term or not kind of an in-house term among pastors, spontaneous baptisms. That's where a crowd or congregation is gathered to a baptistry or to the lake, and the water is opened up to simply anybody who's present who might wish to jump on in. 
No preparation, no careful pastoral counseling, certainly no warning. Can you imagine John the Baptist at a spontaneous baptism? He'd die twice. Smoke would be coming out of his ears. And why? Simple. Because if people are going to be saved, they need to understand the non-negotiable necessity of repentance. Now, lest we conclude that I have sharp eyes for the errors of others but not for our own church, I'll freely admit I'm confident that over the past 12 years that we likely have baptized unconverted people. That grieves me. Thinking back over all of our baptisms and considering the lives that all of the people are leading now that we have baptized, I think it's probably happened. But here's what makes it really unsettling. We have an interview process. We are careful with people before they enter the waters of baptism. We've never had a spontaneous baptism in this church, and on my watch it will never happen. And there's still a margin for error, even when you're careful. So what's the way forward here? Well, it's simpler than we might think. John points the way ahead for these folks in verses 8 and 9. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I, I heard, I think it was somebody who said to D.L. Moody, um, they had known somebody who D.L. Moody had baptized and they uh, turns out we're living a life just entirely undoing their baptism. And they approached, this person approached D.L. Moody saying, I, is that, isn't that one of your people? Isn't that one of your converts out there? And Moody was supposed to have felt, you know, embarrassed by this. And he said, well, he must be one of my, one of my converts because he's certainly not one of the Lord's. We can take a measure of responsibility for this. We ought to. Now, last week we learned, according to chapter 3, verse 3, that John's baptism was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. In other words, John was utterly unwilling to separate these two things, the waters of baptism and personal repentance. They go together. They dovetail with each other. And the reason is quite clear. Water baptism, apart from personal repentance, is an empty religious ritual. That gets us nowhere. It does not guarantee forgiveness of sins. Repentance is at the heart of the matter. My favorite definition of repentance comes from the pen of Wayne Grudem. Grudem says repentance is this. Repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. That's an excellent definition of repentance. I'll share it again. Repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. It puts together the the, the Old Testament and the New Testament view of repentance. The Old Testament word for repentance we looked at last week, it's the idea of turning, turning from sin. The New Testament idea of repentance is a change of mind. Put those two things together. Your mind is changed about sin and you turn from sin. Now without a doubt, as I mentioned before, John has the Pharisees and Sadducees in his view. 
Matthew 3, 7 makes that plain. John's words are aimed at the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Those who claim some sort of spiritual superiority, some sort of moral high ground because of their ethnicity, because they were ethnically descended from Abraham. And they don't say that here, but he knows what they're thinking. That's why he calls them on it. Verse 8, And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. Uh, New Testament scholar Daryl Box says that when John says, And do not begin to say to yourselves, he's saying, Such a thought should not even enter your minds or cross your lips. Don't even think it. Don't even say it. Ethnic connections don't close the gap between us and a holy God. Neither does a whole lifetime of church going, for that matter, or having Christian parents. So if that doesn't fix things with God on the day of judgment, what does? John's answer is summarized in six words. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. In other words, if we or the people on our list of five are going to be saved, we all must come to understand the non-negotiable necessity of true repentance. Now, I hope this lights a fire under you. It, it does for me. This cru- truth convicts me from at least two different directions. It's a sword that just swings both ways. First of all, I think about evangelism with my list of five. And it reminds me to be more insistent to articulate the cost of discipleship to folks that I'm evangelizing, not less. When we've never preached a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel in this church, and for that I praise God, but sometimes I wonder with unbelievers if we are not clear enough about the absolute, foundational, non-negotiable necessity of repentance, the rock-bottom demand for repentance. John was not unclear on this. Jesus was not unclear on this. Luke 9, 23 to 25, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? I was just sharing the gospel in my office with someone this past week, and I said, you what do you think about following Jesus? Do you think that you're ready? And the person said, it seems like following Jesus is awfully hard. <laughs> I said, you're really close to the kingdom. He understands that you're saved by grace through faith. He got that. He's awfully close. Do you ever say that to people on your list of five? Whoever loses, your life, loses his life will save it. Uh, At the end of Luke's gospel, Jesus says in Luke 24, 46 to 47, we read it last week, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and repentance, turning, change of mind, and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So be upfront with your unbelieving family members and friends and neighbors and coworkers and classmates about the demands of discipleship. Now, the second way this application cuts is just a little bit closer to home. More foundationally, this is about every one of us who calls Mount Free Church our church home. Martin Luther says in the first of his 95 theses, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed that the entire life of believers be one of repentance. 
When you first become a believer, it's the truth of John 3.16 that's so exquisitely wonderful, isn't it? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should have eternal life, not perish. When you first become a believer, John 3.16 is a treasure. We treasure it. But the measure that we treasure John 3.16 is that we are warned by John 3.36. John 3.36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. It's like the old song says, Trust and obey. Trust and obey. There is no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Do you obey Jesus? If you've come to know him, do you obey him? Are there corners of your life that are sealed off to him, shut away, closed to him? Are you holding anything close, anything in your life that is forbidden? Why? If you are, just know that tension can't, can't last. Now, this is a word from J.C. Ryle that is worth quoting in the pulpit at least once a year. In his classic book, Holiness, He wrote these words in 1877. They are just as true 140 years after he wrote them. J.C. Ryle writes this, Sanctification in the last place is absolutely necessary in order to train and prepare us for heaven. Most people would hope to go to heaven when they die, but few, it may be feared, take the trouble to consider whether they would enjoy heaven if by chance they got there. Heaven is essentially a holy place. Its inhabitants are all holy. Its occupations are all holy. To be really happy in heaven, it is clear and plain that we must be somewhat trained and made ready for it while on the earth. We need the work of the Holy Spirit as well as the work of Christ, the renewal of the heart as well as the atoning blood. It's common to hear people say on their deathbeds, I only want the Lord to forgive me my sins and then take me to rest. But he says, but those who say such things forget that the rest of heaven would be utterly useless if we had no heart to enjoy it. What could an unsanctified man do in heaven if by chance he got there? Let that question be fairly looked in the face and fairly answered. No man can possibly be happy in a place where he is not in his element, where all things around him are not congenial to his tastes and habits and character. And this is how he finishes. When an eagle is happy in an iron cage... When a sheep is happy in the water, when an owl is happy in the blaze of noonday sun, when a fish is happy on the dry land, then, and only then, will I admit that the unsanctified man could be happy in heaven. John Owen put it maybe most simply, quote, There is no remedy. You must leave your sins or leave your God. End quote. Paul sums up this truth when he reflected on the church in Thessalonica. He said, Second Thessalonians, or 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 to 10, You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. 
John the Baptist serves to shake us and to, and to wake us to the undeniable certainty that there's a judgment coming. If we or the people in our list of five aim to be saved in the final analysis, we must understand the non-negotiable necessity of true repentance. A final point today. If we or the people in our list of five are going to be saved, we must all come to experience the wonderful reality of true repentance. We've done the negative side of the ledger. Now let's just go positive. If we or the people in our lists of five are going to be saved, we all must come to experience the wonderful reality of true repentance. Now back to our texts. Remember, people have come to John to be baptized. And John is like a, he's like a bouncer outside the door of a bar just examining fake IDs. And he's bouncing people right and left. You need an ID to get into heaven, and the ID is repentance. Well, these words start to sink in. Conviction is beginning to take place. And so some approach him closer to learn more about true repentance. And so we read starting in chapter 3, verse 10. The crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics, share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized, and he said to them, Teach, they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers asked him, And what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. So no less than three times the question is put to him, isn't it? What then shall we do? And I said we needed to address the difference between John's baptism here and our practice of Christian baptism in the church, and so let's do that here. You can see a difference between John's baptism and our baptism here simply in the way that he responds to them. You can tell just by the nature of John's answer to each of these groups that John is ministering under a different set of circumstances than we are on this side of the cross in the empty tomb. Notice that when these people are under conviction for their sin... And they appeal to John, imploring to him, what's the next step? John tells them the next step is obeying the law. He presses in with law, not gospel. Now, for one simple reason, Jesus had not yet officially begun his public ministry. In next week's text, we're going to see that he does point the listeners to Christ in the same context. He does point them to Jesus. But at this point in salvation history, there's no cross, There's no empty tomb, no ascension, no announcement of his return. So it would be important for us to see that if we can find any other instances in the New Testament where people ask the question, the same question on this side of the cross in the empty tomb, how is it answered? We do find this question asked deeper in the New Testament. Here's one example. Consider the crowd at Pentecost. Peter has just preached the first Christian sermon. And the crescendo of his message comes starting in Acts 2.36, where Peter says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There's the gospel. 
And there's even more of the gospel later on in Acts 16.30 where the Philippian jailer and his family are converted and the jailer asks the apostles Paul and Silas the same question, Sirs, what must I do in order to be saved? And they answered, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. So same question, but, but a little bit deeper into salvation history and we get a, what we call a, a, sort of a clearer gospel answer. That's the gospel. And if you're with us today and you're not a Christian, that's the answer to your question today. What must you do to be saved? The answer is repent and believe in Jesus. Turn from your sins and place your faith in Jesus Christ. Count the cost and follow after him. By grace you are saved. And this is our way forward today. And when you have a conversation with someone on your list of five and you tell them about the coming judgment. And not only that, but you're able to lay out for them the absolute non-negotiable nature of true repentance, and they get it. They're cut to the heart, and they say to you, what must I do to be saved? The answer is exactly as the apostles say, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. Salvation is by grace through faith in Christ. Now, of course, this point is about repentance, so let's not gut the heart of what, Paul is, or what John is driving at here in this text. He may well be preaching the law to them in answer to their question, but he's also telling them the truth. He's getting very practical in terms of life change about what it's going to look like to follow down this path. He's breaking it down for them in each case, whether for the crowd or the tax collectors or for the soldiers, exactly what repentance looks like in each of those situations. He says to the crowd in verse 11, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. He says to the tax collectors in 13, collect no more than you're authorized to do. And then finally to the soldiers in verse 14, don't extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation. Be content with your wages. In other words, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And the same is true for us in Christ today. We are justified. Don't miss this in the, during the 500th year of the Reformation. I want to say this. We are justified by faith alone. But just as the Reformers taught, the faith that justifies is never alone. It's never alone. Works are essential to final salvation. We just need to get them on the right side of the ledger, right? James says, faith without works is dead. So as Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10, for by grace you have been saved. This is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We said it before in the church and we'll say it again. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ apart from works, therefore no boasting. But we are also saved by grace through faith in Christ for good works and therefore no coasting. Or consider the way that Paul says it in his letter to Titus. This letter to Titus, unlike or like many of Paul's letters, he's possessed by the gospel. And it's not in spite of the gospel, but because of the gospel that he drives home good works here. No less than six times in three chapters. Listen to how the grace of God operates here for Paul. It's at the heart of repentance. It's at the heart of a changed life. The heart of repentance is a life zealous for good works. Listen to Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. 
For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So if we are the people on our list of five are going to be saved, we all must come to experience the wonderful reality of true repentance. Not just to understand up here, notionally, the non-negotiable notion of true repentance, but also its wonderful reality. So are you, are you changing? Or is today just sort of same stuff, different day for you? If you are a Christian, God designs you to grow, to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. There's a judgment coming. And the fruit inspector is on his way. Jesus says in John 15, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear good fruit, he takes away. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you lest you abide in me. So are you... Are you abiding in Jesus today in his word? Are you changing? Are you growing? Are you anchored in this church in such a way that mutual discipleship and encouragement can take place so that you're growing? And I can imagine that there may be more than, than a few of us here today that because you're a believer, not because you're not a believer, but because you are a believer, you're sensing tremendous conviction of sin at this point. That's actually a really good sign. And you may be looking for something to steady you right now because this sermon text is kind of leave us off kilter here. Well, I have something that you can sink your hope down deep into today because you desire to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. If you want more than anything a life that is zealous for good works, good works that are grounded in and flowing from the gospel, then I've got a couple of promises to you from God's word as we close. Philippians 1.6. Philippians 1.6 says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. I just heard an amen. Is that good news? That's good news. Here's another one that surprised me as I was studying this week. It's a benediction, and it's from 1 Thessalonians 5.23-24. to First Thessalonians 5, 23 to 24. I'd, I'd look in the eye and raise my hands and say it, but I don't have it memorized. So, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Is that rock under your feet this morning? Yeah. Even when we are faithless, he remains faithful to help us experience the wonderful reality of true repentance. Well, let's review. John the Baptist serves to shake us and wake us to the undeniable certainty that there's a judgment coming. If we or the people on our list of five are going to be saved, we all must come to first understand the non-negotiable certainty of necessity of true repentance. And second, if we or the people on our list of five are going to be saved, we all must come to experience 
the wonderful reality of true repentance. So Mount Evangelical Free Church, hear what the Holy Spirit is saying to our church in this moment. Let's connect the obvious dots between personal and corporate holiness on the one hand and evangelistic effectiveness on the other. These two are intimately tied to one another. You cannot with integrity call a person from your list of five to turn from the very sin that you hold close. 1 Peter 4, 17 and 18 has a sobering word for us in this regard. The Apostle Peter says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So friends, please do dwell long and dwell deeply on this truth. Jesus didn't just come to save us from sin's penalty, but also increasingly in this life, sin's power. And one day in heaven, sin's very presence. Horatius Bonar wrote, Our power in drawing men to Christ springs chiefly from our personal joy in Him and the nearness of our communion with Him. I guarantee you this, your personal joy and nearness of your communion with Jesus are impossible apart from a life of genuine repentance. John the Baptist serves to shake us and wake us to the undeniable certainty that there is a judgment coming. Praise God, we have a gospel to put our hope in. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are off balance here in this text. We could easily keep going and we will next week to see John point the way to Jesus. We thank you so much, Lord Jesus, for the good news of the gospel. Good news about grace. That the gospel at the end of the day is believe, not behave. And yet, Lord, I wonder, part of the reason why the good news doesn't always sound like good news to us is that we haven't given enough attention to the bad news and to the cost of turning from sin. So, Lord, just help us to get the whole gospel in view. The absolute non-negotiable necessity of repentance in view of the future judgment and then the joy that grace not only provides us pardon for our sins but power to turn and change and live new lives that we can live in the strength that you supply to the glory that you deserve all through your grace we thank you for it in jesus name